Chapter Five of John Dean of Toronto. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. John Dean of Toronto, a comedy of Whitehall by Herbert George Jenkins. Chapter Five. John Dean leaves Whitehall. One. Come, shouted John Dean irritably. The door opened and Mr. Blair entered. John Dean swung round from his table and glared at him angrily. I tried to telephone, began Mr. Blair. Well, you can't, snapped John Dean. Receivers off. Your boys have been playing Dido all morning on my phone. I'm sorry if that don't help any. Why don't you stop him? Seems to think I'm a sort of inquiry bureau. Dorothy bent low over her notes to hide the smile she could not restrain at the sight of the obvious wretchedness of Mr. Blair. Sir Leicester, would you like to step round? Well, I won't. Tell him that, was the irascible reply. He wants you to meet Sir Harold Wynne, the chief naval constructor, explained Mr. Blair. Tell him to go to Blazes and take his constructions with him. Now, vamoose. Mr. Blair hesitated, glanced at John Dean, seemed about to speak, then, evidently thinking better of it, withdrew, closing the door noiselessly behind him. As John Dean swung round once more to his table, he caught Dorothy's eye. She smiled. With a little grumble in his throat, John Dean became absorbed in his papers. Dorothy decided that he was a little ashamed of his outburst. All the day he had shown marked irritability under the constant interruptions to which he had been subjected. They worked on steadily for a quarter of an hour. Presently there was a gentle tap at the door. With one bound, John Dean was out of his chair and across the room. A second later he threw open the door, ready to annihilate whoever might be there, from the First Lord downwards. Oh, er, Marjorie Rogers stood there. Her pretty eyes dilated with fear as John Dean glared at her. His set look relaxed at the sight of the girl. Is, is Miss West here? she inquired timidly. Sure, come right in, he said. Dorothy was surprised at the change produced by the appearance of Marjorie Rogers. The girl came a few steps into the room, then, seeing Dorothy, tripped over to her and, turning to John Dean, said, still a little nervously, I, I came to ask Miss West if she would like some tea. She smiled up at John Dean, a picture of guileless innocence. Sorry if I scared you, he said awkwardly. Oh, you didn't frighten me, she said, regaining confidence at the sight of John Dean's embarrassment. Perhaps Mr. Dean would like a cup of tea, too, Roji, suggested Dorothy. Oh, would you? cried the girl eagerly. Why, sure, said John Dean, and he smiled. For the first time that day, Dorothy mentally noted. In a flash, Marjorie disappeared. I'm, I'm sorry, said John Dean to Dorothy. I didn't know she was a friend of yours. She's in the room I used to be in, and... She's very sweet, and brings me tea. He nodded comprehendingly. They do a lot of that here, don't they? A lot of what? asked Dorothy. 
drinking tea. We only have it in the afternoon, and, at that moment, Marjorie entered with a small tray containing three cups of tea and a plate of biscuits. These she placed on John Dean's table. Dorothy gasped at the sight of the three cups, wondering what John Dean would think. "'I brought mine in to have with you,' said Marjorie, with perfect self-possession. As she handed Dorothy her cup, then, turning to John Dean, she smiled. He nodded, as if she had done a most ordinary thing. Perching herself upon the corner of John Dean's table, Marjorie chatted brightly, having apparently quite overcome her fears. "'You know, Mr. Dean,' she said, "'we're all dreadfully intrigued about you.' John Dean looked at her with a puzzled expression. "'All the other girls are terribly afraid of you,' she continued. "'I'm not.' "'Of me?' He looked at her in surprise, as if he regarded himself as the last person in the world to inspire fear. "'They say you glare at them.' She smiled a wicked little smile that she called the rouser. As John Dean did not reply, Marjorie continued, "'They call you the bear.' "'Rogie!' gasped Dorothy in horror. "'The bear?' repeated John Dean. "'Why?' "'Oh, but I am going to tell them you're not,' said Marjorie, nibbling at a biscuit and looking across at John Dean appraisingly. "'I think you're really rather nice.' John Dean glanced across at Dorothy, as if unable quite to classify the girl before him. "'Of course, they don't know that you can smile like that,' added Marjorie. John Dean was about to make some remark, when there came another knock. "'Come!' he cried, and a moment later the door opened, and Sir Lyster entered, followed by a tall, sedate-looking man with a bulging forehead and ragged moustache. For a moment the two regarded the scene. Sir Lyster having recourse to his monocle. Marjorie slipped down from the table, all her self-possession deserted her at the sight of Sir Lyster's disapproving gaze. Dorothy bent over her notes, conscious of her burning cheeks, whilst John Dean rose with entire unconcern. "'I'm afraid we've interrupted you, Mr. Dean,' said Sir Lyster. "'It's the only thing they do well in this shack,' was John Dean's uncompromising retort." Sir Lyster gazed a little anxiously at his companion. Taking advantage of the diversion, Marjorie slipped out, and Dorothy, deciding that she would not be wanted for at least a few minutes, followed her. "'I want to introduce you to Sir Harold Wynne,' said Sir Lyster. "'Pleased to meet you,' said John Dean, shaking Sir Harold vigorously by the hand. "'Take a seat.' John Dean and the chief naval constructor were soon deep in the intricacies of submarine construction. When at length Sir Harold rose to go, there was something like cordiality in John Dean's voice as he bade him good-bye. Sir Harold had been able to meet him on common ground and show an intelligent and comprehensive interest in his work. Immediately they had gone, Dorothy, who had been waiting in the corridor, slipped back to her chair, first removing the tea tray from John Dean's table. Soon she was busily taking down notes. While she was thus occupied, Sir Lyster was narrating to Sir Bridgman North the latest John Dean outrage, first his open flouting of the chief naval constructor by refusing to see him, secondly the interrupted tea, and the girl perched upon John Dean's table. 
Sir Bridgman laughed loudly, as much at the expression on Sir Leicester's face as at the occurrence itself. "'Such incidents,' said Sir Leicester, "'are, I think, very undesirable.' "'It looks as if John Dean were a dark horse,' suggested Sir Bridgman. "'Was the other girl pretty?' "'I really didn't notice,' said Sir Leicester stiffly. "'I thought perhaps you might—' He hesitated for a fraction of a second. Just drop him a hint, he added. And he gingered up as high as our own aerials, laughed Sir Bridgman. No, my dear Grain, he added, I find gingering up intensely interesting in its application to others. Get Blair to do it. But I'm afraid it may create a scandal, said Sir Lyster. Oh, another little scandal won't do us any harm laughed Sir Bridgman. Now I must be off. By the way, he said, as he reached the door, what time did this little tea-fight take place? It was about four o'clock, when Wynne and I— Right, said Sir Bridgman. I'll drop in about that time tomorrow and see what's doing, and the door closed behind him. A moment later he put his head round the door. One of these days you'll be finding Blair with a girl on each knee, he laughed and with that he was gone. John Dean's reason for wishing to have offices somewhere away from the Admiralty had been twofold. For one thing, he did not desire those he knew were closely watching should see him in close association with Whitehall. For another, he felt that he could breathe more freely away from Gold Braid and those long, dreary corridors which seemed so out of keeping with the headquarters of a navy at war. He now determined to get out at once. The constant interruptions to which he found himself subjected rendered concentration impossible. He therefore informed Dorothy that at nine o'clock next morning they would start work in the new offices he had taken in Waterloo Place. They consisted of two rooms, one leading off the other. The larger room John Dean decided to use himself. The smaller he handed over to Dorothy. With a celerity that had rather surprised John Dean, the telephone had been connected and a private wire run through to the Admiralty. The thing about a Britisher, he remarked to Dorothy, is that he can hustle, but won't. She allowed the remark to pass unchallenged. Now things will begin to hum, he said, as he settled himself down to his table. Throwing aside his coat, he set to work. There was little over three weeks in which to get everything organized and planned. Long lists of stores for the destroyer had to be prepared, the details of the structural alterations to the Toronto, the name given to the mothership that was to act as tender to the destroyer, instructions to the Canadian crew that was coming over, and a thousand and one other things that kept them busily occupied. He arranged to have luncheon sent in from the Ritzton. After the first day, the ordering of these meals was delegated to Dorothy. John Dean's ideas on the subject of food proved original, resulting in the ordering of about five times as much as necessary. Dorothy came to look forward to these dainty meals, which she could order with unstinted hand, and she liked the tete-a-tete half-hours during their consumption. Then John Dean would unbend and tell her of Canada, about his life there and in America, how he had planned and built the destroyer. He seemed to take it for granted that she could be trusted to keep her own counsel. The night after John Dean's entry into his new offices, the place was burgled. 
In the morning, when he arrived, he found papers tossed about in reckless disorder. The fourth set of plans of German U-boats had disappeared. With grim humor, he drew a fifth set from his pocket and placed it in the safe, which he did not keep locked, as it contained nothing of importance. John Dean's method was to burn every paper or duplicate that was no longer required, and to have sent over to the Admiralty each day before five o'clock such documents as were of importance. For the first time in her life, Dorothy felt she was doing something of national importance. John Dean trusted her, and took her patriotism as a matter of course. Sometimes he would inquire if she were tired, and on hearing that she was not, he would nod his approval. "'You're some worker,' he once remarked casually, whereat Dorothy had flushed with pleasure. Later, she remembered that this was the first word of praise she had heard him bestow on anything or anybody British. At first, a buttons had called from the Ritzton each morning and afternoon for orders, but after the second day, he had been superseded by a waiter. One morning, after the order had been given, John Dean inquired of Dorothy if she had ever tasted lobster a l'American. "'Typists don't eat lobster a l'American in England, Mr. Dean,' she had replied. "'It's too expensive.' Whereupon he had told her to ring up the Riston and order lobster a l'American for lunch in place of the order already given. Ten minutes later, a ring came through from the hotel to the effect that there must be some mistake, as there was no lunch on order for Mr. John Dean. Dorothy protested that they had been supplied with lunch each day for the last four days. The management deprecatingly suggested that there had been a mistake, as after the first two days, the orders had been cancelled. Dorothy repeated the information to John Dean, who then took the receiver. "'If you didn't supply lunch yesterday,' Who the blazes did, he demanded, and a suave voice answered that it did not know who it was that had that honor, but certainly it was not the Ritzton. John Dean banged back the receiver impatiently. We'll wait and see what happens at twelve o'clock, he exclaimed, as he turned once more to the papers on his table. Somebody's feeding us, he muttered. Perhaps it's the ravens, murmured Dorothy to herself. At twelve o'clock, a waiter entered with a tray. At the sound of his knock, John Dean revolved round in his chair. "'Here, where do you come from?' he demanded, glaring as if he suspected the man of being of German parentage. The man started violently and nearly dropped the tray. "'I obey orders,' he stammered. "'Yes, but whose orders?' For a moment, the man hesitated. "'Do you come from the Ritzton?' demanded John Dean aggressively. "'I obey orders,' repeated the man. John Dean looked from the tray to Dorothy, and then to the man, but said nothing, contenting himself with waving the man out with an impatient motion of his hand. After the meal, he picked up his hat, lighted a cigar, and told Dorothy he would be back in a quarter of an hour. Five minutes later, he burst in upon Mr. Blair. "'Here, what the hell's all this about my meals?' John Dean seemed to take a delight in descending upon Sir Leicester's secretary. Mr. Blair turned towards him with that expression he seemed to keep expressly for John Dean. "'Your meals,' he stammered. "'Yes,' replied John Dean, blowing volumes of acrid smoke towards the sensitive nostrils of Mr. Blair. "'Why was my order to the Ritzton cancelled? That sort of thing rattles me.' 
I'm afraid that I know nothing of this, said Mr. Blair, but I will inquire. Well, I'd like somebody to put me wise as to why he interferes with my affairs. And John Dean stamped out of the room and back to Waterloo Place. 2. Shucks, cried John Dean irritably. You make me tired. I doubt if you appreciate the seriousness of the situation, was Colonel Walton's quiet retort. I appreciate the seriousness of a situation that turns my phone into a sort of elevator bell and makes my office like a free drink saloon at an election. Colonel Walton smiled indulgently. Dorothy kept her eyes upon her notebook. You get your notion about spies from ten-cent thrillers, continued John Dean scornfully. Don't you worry about me. If there's a hungry dog, I believe in feeding it, he added enigmatically. I might as well be a lost baggage office. Every mutt that has ten minutes to waste seems to blow in on me. You're the tenth this a.m. At that rate, you will soon have exhausted all the government departments, said Colonel Walton with a smile. I doubt if any will venture a second visit, he added quietly. John Dean glanced across at him quickly. Say, I didn't mean to make you mad he said in a conciliatory tone, but all this rattles me. I can't get along with things while they're playing rags on my phone. It makes me madder'n a wet hen. I quite understand, Mr. Dean, said Colonel Walton, with that imperturbable good humor that was the envy of his friends. You are rather valuable to us, you see, and if we err on the side of overcaution, he paused. "'Sure!' cried John Dean, thawing under the influence of Colonel Walton's personality. Then, after a pause, he added, "'See here, your boys seem to have a notion that I'm particular green goods. You just let one of them try and corral me one of these nights, and when you've explained things to the widow, you can just blow in here and tell me how she took it.' "'It's the insidious rather than the overt act,' began Colonel Walton. "'The what?' John Dean looked at him with a puzzled expression. Instead of replying, Colonel Walton drew from his right-hand pocket something in a paper bag, such as is used by confectioners. This he placed upon the table. He then extracted from his other pocket a small package rolled in newspaper, which he laid beside the paper bag. John Dean stared at him as if not quite sure of his sanity. "'Perhaps you will open those packets.' With his eyes still on his visitor, John Dean picked up the paper bag and, turning it upside down, shook out upon the table a brown and white guinea pig, dead. Dorothy drew back with a little cry. "'This some of your funny work?' demanded John Dean angrily. "'There's still the other parcel,' said Colonel Walton, his eyes upon the small roll done up in newspaper. Very gingerly, John Dean unrolled the paper." Dorothy watching from a safe distance with wide-eyed curiosity. "'Gee!' he muttered, as a large dead gray rat lay exposed, its upper lip drawn back from his teeth, giving it a snarling appearance. He looked interrogatingly at Colonel Walton. "'There, but for the grace of God, lies John Dean of Toronto,' he remarked quietly, nodding in the direction of the two rodents. "'Here! What the hell!' began John Dean. Then, catching sight of Dorothy, he stopped suddenly. 
Two days ago, you ordered for lunch riz de veau and apple tart, among other things. The rat is the victim of the one, the guinea pig of the other. Dorothy gave a little cry of horror. John Dean looked across at her quickly, then back to Colonel Walton. You mean, he began, that a certain department has assumed the responsibility of catering for a distinguished visitor, was the quiet reply. It is but one of the pleasant obligations of empire. John Dean sat gazing at the dead animals as if fascinated. With distended eyes and slightly parted lips, Dorothy looked from the table to Colonel Walton, and then back to the table again, as if unable to comprehend the full significance of what was taking place. "'I would suggest,' said Colonel Walton, "'that you never take food regularly at any one hotel or restaurant. Avoid being out late at night, particularly raid nights.' "'Raid nights?' You might be knocked on the head and removed as a casualty. John Dean nodded. Dorothy gasped. Never take food or drink of any sort in your room at the hotel, and don't travel on the tube or underground, at least never stand on the edge of the platform, and don't use taxis. And what about a nurse? demanded John Dean. If you observe these points, I scarcely think one would be necessary, was the quiet rejoinder. It would also be advisable, continued Colonel Walton, for Miss West to be particularly careful about making chance acquaintances. Dorothy drew herself up stiffly. During the last few days, continued Colonel Walton, a number of attempts have been made by women as well as men. How did you know? she cried in surprise. We have sources of information, smiled Colonel Walton. For instance, the day before yesterday, at lunch, a pleasant-spoken old lady asked you to go with her to the theater one Saturday afternoon. Dorothy gasped. You very rightly declined. A few days ago, a man ran after you, just as you had left the tube train at Piccadilly Circus, saying that you had left your umbrella. How funny that you should know, cried Dorothy. Such a number of people have spoken to me lately. First it was men, and now it's always women. "'Make no acquaintances at all, Miss West,' said Colonel Walton. "'I'll remember,' she said, nodding her head with decision. "'Well, Mr. Dean, I fear I mustn't take up any more of your time,' said Colonel Walton, rising with that air of indolence which with him invariably meant that something important was coming. "'If you will not allow us to be responsible for your own safety, we must at least provide for that of government servants.' "'What's that?' "'We should not like anything to happen to Miss West.' To Colonel Walton's good-bye, John Dean made no response. He seemed unaware that he had left the room. "'Gee!' he muttered at length. Then, swinging round to Dorothy, with a suddenness that caused her to start, "'You had better vamoose,' he cried. "'Vam,' she began. "'How do I do it?' "'Quit. Clear out of here.' He sprang from his chair and proceeded to pace up and down the room. "'Does that mean that I'm discharged?' she inquired, smiling. "'You heard what he said. They're up to their funny work. They missed us this time and got the rat and guinea pig. They're always at it. I don't make a fuss, but I know. There'll be a bomb in my bed one of these nights. You'd better call a halt right here.' "'Shall we get on with the letters, Mr. Dean?' said Dorothy quietly. 
father was a soldier. For a moment he looked at her with his keen, penetrating eyes, then, swinging round to his table, caught sight of the two dead rodents. Here, what the blazes does he want to leave these things here for? he cried irritably, and, seizing a ruler, he swept them into the waste-paper basket. For the rest of the day, Dorothy was conscious that John Dean's heart was not in his work. Several times, when happening to look up unexpectedly, she found his eyes on her, and there was in them an anxiety too obvious to be dissimulated. John Dean was clearly worried. "'It's an extraordinary thing,' Sage remarked later that afternoon to Colonel Walton, "'that apparently no one has ever thought of encouraging a taste for apple-tart in guinea-pigs.'" End of Chapter 5 Recording by William Tomko.